Retail is the wild, wild west. (laughs) It is truly so, it's like a crazy, crazy channel because you have literally no control. You can try and kind of implement bumpers to have control, but I will say if you're disrupting a category, it makes it much easier. Sabina Lada is the founder and CEO of Dough, the good-for-you cookie dough company. Sabina is revolutionizing the relationship between health-conscious eating and notoriously sweet foods by refusing to compromise taste and health. Raised in a small town in Texas, she grew up snacking on junk foods, and as she grew up, she wanted to have a better balance between better-for-you foods and less healthy options. And from there, a dream business was realized. She took her favorite snack, cookie dough, and reformulated it with clean ingredients and vitamins. Coming up, how being an intrapreneista within established brands has helped Sabina transition to being an entrepreneista. The process that Sabina took to create Doe's first product. Sabina shares her experience on Shark Tank and the learning lessons from raising venture capital. And finally, why taking a moment to celebrate when building your business is so important. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Savina, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. I heard about Doe a couple of months ago from a mutual friend and then actually ended up investing in one of your SPVs because I was so excited about what you were building and know that you are just an incredible entrepreneurista. So I am so thrilled to have this conversation. I would love to know, did you always know that you wanted to start your own business? Oh, that's such a funny question. It's like hindsight is twenty twenty, right? When you look back and you're like, oh yeah, that totally made sense. I would say no. I wasn't like out, you know, the people who are out the womb selling candy on the bus. And that was me. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my husband, it's funny because he's not an entrepreneur now, but my husband was like, he would go to Krispy Kreme and get donuts with his mom and then go like sell them overpriced on the playground. Like that was never me. I was too busy, probably having anxiety about getting a 4.0 in school. But I, there were patterns, I think, that were entrepreneurial mm-hmm. in in my career and different jobs that I had that, without getting too specific, almost like lent themselves to be entrepreneurial at those mm-hmm. companies. And I don't think I noticed that at the time. I think what what it came off as to me is, you know, I, I'm not a great rule follower or I like to work on, you know, things from scratch or, you know, this, what we called like the scrappy brands when I was at Frito-Lay at Pepsi. And those types of, I would say like uncharted territories and almost like not wanting the red tape and wanting to create that was super entrepreneurial, but I didn't, I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought I was kind of like a misfit in big companies and like, like to work on the weird stuff and, you know, got my passions from, from somewhere else. But I always had a little bit of the knack. It's just now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I was entrepreneurial. I just wasn't the typical like playground selling candy kind of entrepreneurial. (laughs) It's so funny you say that. You just gave me a flashback. Do you remember this candy called Lemonheads? 
Yes, I love those. <laughs> I, in like fifth grade, I would take, like, buy up the lemon heads. They were like the most popular oh candy God. and like resell them in school. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's like pre-eBay. You know, people do it on eBay with like Supreme sweatshirts. <laughs> it's like pre-eBay. You were doing that, that reselling. There are a couple of things I will say when you're a kid and you have kind of exposure to, like, I was a Girl Scout my whole life and that, you know, you do... They teach you entrepreneurship. Like yes, you have to sell absolutely. those damn cookies. So, yes. so there are little things like that that I think like if you figure out you have energy and you kind of double down on them, then you're like, oh, okay, maybe this is the path for me. I was a brownie as well and a top seller. And that that was literally my first taste of top seller, first taste of entrepreneurship. And I think that's when I, I got the bug and then selling everything in school like Lemonhead. So definitely on the same path there. So tell me about your career path. So you mentioned PepsiCo, Frito-Lay. What were some of the roles that you were involved in? And then how did you, you know, parlay that experience into now launching Dough? So it's funny because I was always pretty insecure about my career path. I think especially millennials. I think Gen Z maybe is a little bit different because they are kind of told to follow their passions. Um, but millennials, it was all about being well-rounded. One was a thing we heard all the time. And then two was kind of following this straight and narrow resume path. Like make sure your resume looks good. Make sure you don't leave a company before two years. Make sure you don't have any gaps in your resume because you'll have to explain those. Like it was very kind of cookie cutter and there were a lot of rules. And when I was making the different moves in my career, I was pretty insecure about, you know, it doesn't make sense to go from CPG to McKinsey, like in consulting. And it doesn't make sense to go from consulting to venture capital. You know, like it's not the path and it's not this kind of like straighten up into the right. But now that I look back on it, all of those experiences are the reason that I've been able to scale dough so quickly. And, you know, there's PepsiCo was, I would say, an amazing experience. Like there was, I will say the only thing that I kind of ended up having issues with is my personal food philosophy was at odds with, I would say, big food CPG's philosophy. But everything you learn at those companies, like I was in the brand management role specifically. There's five people on the brand team. It was the Lay's brand, which is a $3 billion brand. And everything you learn from, you know, managing a P&L to working with a celebrity on a Super Bowl campaign to executing in retail and figuring out how to be successful in Target or Walmart or Whole Foods, like those are are the skill sets that I, I'm directly using, right? And like, sure, at a different scale, like we had big teams to do that stuff when I was at Frito-Lay, but just learning it and getting that 101 was probably the most useful to Doe and most relevant to Doe. I will say though, McKinsey and, and Venture had their own, they play their own parts too in the company, but the most relevant, I would say, experience was at PepsiCo Frito-Lay. So tell me about when you had the idea to start this business. What happened? So it's funny. I think every entrepreneur, I don't know if you're like this, but I think every entrepreneur has had a dozen ideas. And some of them maybe fall off or some of them you probably still think about. Or, you know, you tested some of them like me. I tested this social house concept called Playhouse right before the pandemic. So thank God I didn't move forward with that. But you have all of these concepts swirling around. And I think the difference between an entrepreneur and a non-entrepreneur is just doing it, like just trying it, which is kind of crazy to think about, right? Like a lot of people have ideas. And I had tested a couple of concepts, like I mentioned that social house concept, which I was super passionate about, but, you know, pandemic hit and 
I had a couple of other ideas swirling around, one in the women's nutrition space. And I was taking a ton of supplements during COVID. I think everybody was, right? You're taking like zinc and vitamin D and elderberry. And then I was also taking my probiotics and turmeric for inflammation. And, you know, I got to a point where I was taking 10 pills a day and I honestly got pill fatigue. Like it was like, it was too much. It would hurt my throat, my stomach. I'm still taking all, I'm still taking all of that stuff. So yeah. Like it's, and I would, I would get like a stomach ache. Like it was a horror. And I, I generally felt like, you know, I am pretty healthy. I, you know, try to eat a salad every day. Like I try to eat vegetables. I love dessert. Like that's my advice. But why do I feel like I need this insurance? And like, why can't I get that from food? So kind of explored the, the women's nutrition space a little bit. And the original concept was actually like a food version of taking your vitamins. So it was like, think a famous Amos cookie, but you know, with all of your vitamins in it, quickly explored that category and decided I didn't want to be in kind of the supplement category. And that that product was from an R and D perspective, just extremely difficult to make. So kind of snowballed into, you know, what are the categories kind of in this almost healthy indulgences space in the grocery store that haven't been disrupted yet? And it's it's hard because a lot of the categories in the grocery store have been disrupted. Like that's been the last 10 years in food and beverage CPG. Like ice cream, you know, has done a great job. I would say cereal has done a great job. So there are some categories, bars even like super saturated, they've done a great job in creating clean options. So what is that that kind of fits my personal background, which is junk food basically, and kind of healthifying it in a way that, you know, not just I want, but in a way that women want to eat. And I think that consumer insight around what women want to eat is pretty interesting because a lot of brands don't pigeonhole themselves to just women, right? Like they want it to be as mass as possible. And we're launching a little teaser. We're launching in a new category in the winter. And so far in that category, all there is, is kind of like these bro protein, like, you know, different types of snacks. And it's, it's like, I don't want a giant protein snack that's three to 400 calories and like will fill me up for the day and like makes me kind of crap. Like, I don't want that. That's not how I eat. I eat like snacks all throughout the day. So anyways, that's all to say like how do it, it was, it started as, okay, women's nutrition, healthy indulgences, and then kind of transformed into how do we create what women want to eat and do it in a way that they want to consume it. So once you were pretty sold on where you were going to focus, what were some of the first steps that you took to actually test making the product, see if you had product market fit? Where did you go from there? Yeah, I mean, we went through the entire alphabet. So we were naming our samples A, B, C, D. So we went through the entire alphabet to Z and then back through half the alphabet again, like A, 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 B, A, C. And chocolate chip was the first flavor that that we were focusing on because it still is the bestseller and it's the one that everyone will. People really love our drops and our collab flavors, but it's still the the one that everybody go, uh, gravitates towards to. So the R&D process was truly like in my kitchen and it was it was COVID. It was like, think like dead of COVID. Like you weren't allowed to go outside. People were scared if you were going on a walk, you would get arrested like that, that type of COVID. So, I mean, one, had a lot of time on my hands. And then two, um, I had a friend who was a gluten-free baker and she, I I asked her, I was like, look, is this possible? Like, I'm not necessarily gluten-free and vegan, but is it possible to make this type of product and make it, you know, edible, raw, bakeable, and then as well, working with our naturopathic doctor, how do we enhance it with functional ingredients? Because, you know, women want it all. We want it to be, you know, healthy and taste delicious. And then we want it to be good for you. And and so I, I was like, you know, just let's experiment. So, you know, that's when 
she started dropping off flavors to my house. And then, you know, I started experimenting and we essentially went through the entire alphabet, got to our perfect chocolate chip flavor. And then it all kind of, I would say, pyramided from there when we just, when we started deciding our flavors. But that was, I would say that process was all, especially with food, it happens in the home, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, no, I love hearing that story. And I feel like, you know, with our entrepreneurista community, so many of the women in our community also started businesses during COVID because either they lost jobs during the pandemic and wanted to start a business or, you know, had more time on their hands to start something because we weren't commuting. So I love hearing these stories. And it's just incredible to see how quickly you've been able to just launch and scale the business because we're now, we're recording this. What month are we in? This is September of 2022. COVID was only two years ago. And now you have been on Shark Tank. You're raising capital. You did, I believe, what, over a million dollars in sales in your first business? Like, Yeah. Yeah. In our first year. Yeah. It's crazy. If you would have told me that though last year, I would have been like, absolutely not. It's funny because yeah, to your point, like, do you take a moment? I feel like founders don't. Like we're so on to the next thing. It's like, great. You know, I had this accomplishment and you might be super excited for the day. And then you're, and then all you think about is one, everything that could go wrong, right? Potentially. And then two, in, in executing that. And then two, it's like, okay, what's the next thing? And that's one thing I've been trying to work on quite a bit this year is, you know, how do you start to enjoy those wins more? And how do you, you know, even if it's turning off for a half day or whatever a reward means to you, like that, that is, I I think that's what we overachievers probably is the right word. We kind of lack is kind of enjoying those wins because yeah, if you would have told me last year at this time, because we hadn't even aired on Shark Tank last year at this time. So we aired on in November, 2021. So I was really in the thick of it last year at this time. And if you would have told me that, I would have been like, oh, like, no way that we're doing that. (laughs) And it's so important as entrepreneurs, like we need to celebrate these wins because that's also like what keeps us going and and fuels us to just keep going and go, 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 go. So in our Entrepreneurista League community, we actually have a, a section in there called Celebrate. And we encourage everyone to just post in there and share like even the things that might seem small and not, you know, appearing on Shark Tank. It could be, you know, we, you know, sold out of XYZ flavor or something small, whatever it is, just posting it in there so everyone can like cheer each other on because it can be lonely, all of us, you know, running businesses in a silo and being able to bring everyone together and celebrate is is so, so important. So I have a question about how do you stay organized with all of the priorities that you have going on, you know, getting into new retailers, managing your marketing, R&D, there's so much that has to be done in a day. How do you prioritize and stay organized? Oh my gosh. I know it's the crazy, especially when you're a solo founder, which, you know, you don't have with a co-founder, you have kind of like a division of responsibility. So you can focus being a solo founder. It's literally like my day is like this <laughs> and it's like, okay, I need to think about the PL one moment. And then I need to think about, you know, Facebook ads, another moment. And then I need to think about product innovation. It's, it's so crazy, but so it's kind of interesting, I guess. There are a couple of things that have happened where in my life where I thought of them as almost like Achilles heels or like negative. And in this role and in what I'm doing now, it's actually proven helpful. So the two things are one, I was diagnosed with ADHD in my twenties, you know, post-college, which is kind of wild because usually that's a diagnosis that you get when you're younger. And then two is that, you know, I 
have this, I guess like you can call imposter syndrome, which a lot of, I think people have and a lot of women specifically and female founders have, but that's also kind of fueled me, right? Like that is feeling like I don't belong has made me work harder to belong. And so it's kind of been my fuel. So those two things where, you know, in my, in my life, I thought of as kind of negative have kind of helped me. So the reason kind of circling back to your question about how do you manage all these priorities, my ADHD in this type of role is actually a good thing. Like it's actually strong that I can context switch so quickly, like way more than the average person. And that's because, you know, in my daily life, my husband hates it. He's like, can you focus? Like we're trying to like solve this one thing and my mind is already on to the next thing. And so it actually does help where I can take, I have blocks of meetings from like nine to three and they're, you know, 30 minute meetings. So that's a shit ton of meetings, but I can context switch from ops to product, to retail, to doing an investor pitch, to writing a deck to, and that has actually been really helpful. And, you know, I stopped taking medication. I did it. I, I took medication for a couple of years in my mid twenties. And then I was like, I don't like how I feel on this. I don't want to take this. And I will say it's been sure there there are times where I need to like sit like when I was writing my investor deck and I needed to sit for two or three hours to just like focus. That's, you know, a little bit difficult. I have to like make sure I have nothing around, but for everything else and kind of competing priorities, it helps that I can context switch. And I just can kind of like bucket my lists of here are my weekly priorities. And then I know if I'm getting off track a little bit, like I didn't say that was a weekly priority. So that can go to next week. I feel like I'm talking to myself right now because everything you just shared, I'm like, that's exactly how I operate and how I run everything. And people always ask me, they're like, how do you do all of these things? And that's just how my brain works. Like, I actually, it's hard for me to just focus on one thing. Yeah. No, so, it totally is. And it's it's kind of boring now. Like, it's like, if I have to just do one thing all day, like, I'm like, all right, like, what do we, like, give me something interesting. <laughs> do you think back to like when you were in the corporate world and like just focused on just one brand or one task? Like, how did you do that? Oh my gosh. No, but I, it makes sense that I was diagnosed in my mid twenties or like after college because I started, this is crazy. I don't even know if I've shared this with anyone. I started falling asleep at work. I was like number four in my class. Like I was like super, like my SAT scores were super high. Like I was an insane student. So to, I thought I had narcolepsy because there were times where I would be sitting in my cubicle and I would like, like not off. And then I would freak out, go get coffee. I was having like three or four cups of coffee a day. And then I told, you know, my doctor, I was like, it's kind of crazy. Like, I don't know what's happening. Like I've, I've never had this before. I think I have narcolepsy. Like, can you please test me? Can you do these sleep tests on me? Or can you send me to a specialist? And she was like, no, I think you have ADHD and you've just never been diagnosed. And your work is so, and not monotonous because I was working on a ton of different things. But to your point, like you have to have that focus. And when you're an analyst at that age, you don't go outside of your out of, outside of your scope as much. So she was like, you're just bored. And that's like a sign of, of ADHD. And that that's how I was diagnosed as I was bored at work. <laughs> it's so interesting because like, maybe it's not that you have ADHD, you just weren't doing something that you're passionate about and needed to do something yeah. else. Right? It's, it's like, true. Sure, go on medicine. But it's like, maybe you were just in the wrong, in the wrong job and doing the wrong in thing. The wrong I don't job. know. Maybe. Who knows? Up next, Sabina shares her experience on Shark Tank and her lessons learned. 
Sabina, last year you were featured on Shark Tank. And for many entrepreneurs, it is an absolute dream to get on that show. And I know the process is can be grueling to get on yeah. and prep and do all the work. Can you share a little bit about your experience, you know, applying for the process, how you were able to get on and your experience on the show and, and what you learned from it? Yeah. That experience is super gnarly. I always tell people because I I had a ton of founders help me when I was going through the process that had already been through the process. So anytime someone reaches out to me, I always tell people to just think twice. <laughs> like it's a lot. It takes away time from your business. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I spent probably a hundred hours total on not just the app, but like meeting with producers, like working on your business plan, like your pitch, having it perfect. Like there are so many elements of the entire set that you see up there. That's all done by the founder. So I will say it is pretty grueling, but to me, I think worth it if you have the time and you have kind of the ability to do it. So the process is interesting. They actually reached out to us and I've heard of both happening, right? Like I have friends who have applied, I have friends who have applied four years straight and then they get on on their fourth year, but they sent us a cold email And you know, when you get an email like that, you're like, what? Like, no way. Like, this is someone like playing a joke on me. So immediately I screenshot the email and I just like send it to all of my friends and family. And I'm like, this has got to be fake. Little did I know that that's like the very tip of the iceberg. Like that is almost, getting that email is exciting, but it's also, they reach out to so many companies that, you know, that's their job. Their job is to scout. So the funnel goes from here to very, very slim. And, you know, the process I will say is, really defining your story. And I think that is something that I actually needed because Doe, when I first launched it, I launched it as a a test. Like I truly, I put in $20,000 of my own money and I had parted ways with that money. I said, okay, if this doesn't work out, like at least I tested this and at least I tried it. And when we launched it, it wasn't like a full on, you know, we had raised a couple million dollars, like we're doing this. I truly was seeing if there was product market fit. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have the story tight because I didn't have to write an investor deck because it was, I was bootstrapped. And so it really did help in, in kind of understanding, understanding that story. And then as well, kind of being able to communicate it and, and, it did help with my investor pitches because I was doing that at the same time as I was like, I was writing my pitch at the same time I was actually pitching and like, sure. It's not the like cheesy formal, like, you know, walk on the stage and like, you know, you have to like be super animated. Like I wasn't doing all of that, but it did help kind of tell that story. So when they reached out to you, were you already planning your fundraise at that time? So they actually, no. So it was around the same time that I decided to fundraise, but they reached out to me in January of 2021. And it was kind of a crazy time. I was making product until three in the morning. And then I would wake up at seven to pack boxes and go fulfill it at UPS when it opened. So that was a time where I was like completely like burning what is it? Burning the candle on both ends. Yep. yep. And, and it, you know, every entrepreneur has that story early on where they are, especially with food, where they're making the product themselves. But that was when towards the end of January, when I got out of my imposter syndrome a little bit, where I was like, oh, this is, I thought it was a December was a fluke. Like December's a fluke. Like that was just a crazy high month because of gifting. January, I was like, oh, maybe it's a fluke because of, you know, new year and people want to eat healthier. And the numbers were just like there, like the revenue numbers were there. And that's when I, towards the end of the month was like, I need to get a co-packer. Like it's not a fluke. Like this is what's happening and the business is growing. And so once I decided the co-packer 
that's when I decided to fundraise. So that was kind of the order of events. And then Shark Tank was happening all around the same time. Um, But I knew I wasn't going to wait for Shark Tank to raise money. I needed to raise money. And I have kind of a background that lent itself well to raising money. So I was like, I need to raise money with or without Shark Tank because what if Shark Tank doesn't go through? Most don't go through. Yeah. And most of the time, even when you, even if you get through the whole process and you film you still only have a 50% chance of airing. So it's like you can't you can't put your all your eggs in that basket, you yes. know? A business is a gamble, but Shark Tank is definitely a gamble because you just never you never know what's going to happen. You have to be willing to take that risk. So I watched your segment on Shark Tank and at the very end of the segment because you initially got an offer from Robert and then if you want to share what happened because I have some thoughts based on what happened at the end that I was like, "What?" based on what he, what he did. So <laughs> I had a lot of women reach out and a lot of like female entrepreneurs reach out, which is really comforting. I also had a fun little like Reddit thread of a bunch of people hating on me. So, you know, you go on national television, you're going to get both, right? It's reality TV at the end of the day. So there was a couple things that happened. One was, so I got the offer from Robert. He said the nicest compliment I have ever heard in my life. He said, out of the 13 years that I've been doing this show, you're one of the most impressive entrepreneurs that I have come across and that has been on the show. And I was like about to be in tears because that was like the most amazing compliment ever. Ended up giving me an offer. I negotiated. So generally, if you watch the show too, 99% of the time, the founder or the entrepreneur negotiates because it also is a part of, I mean, you want to show that you're like a good business person. You're not just going to like take the deal. And by the way, I guess the other set of context is that I had already raced. So I filmed in July. I had finished my round earlier that year. So I had raised on a $6 million valuation cap. And I was going in there on a three because that's what I had started with. So, you know, that would really dilute me if you do the math. And so, you know, I, I negotiated and he ended up reneging his offer. There was, I call it like 1.5 negotiations because negotiated and then he came back and said no. And then I came back and said, okay, fine. And, you know, some people call that negotiating twice. I say it was like one, one and a half times, whatever. Oh no. And sorry, I guess the in-between is I offered sweat equity. I was like, okay, I don't want the valuation to come down, but I'll give you sweat equity. So there are, there are nuances in my negotiation just because I'm familiar with the space. And then he ended up reneging his offer and it was, it was like the craziest feeling being up there because you don't know what happened. Like you can kind yes. of see it in my face a little bit of like, like, oh, like I like I like didn't know what just happened. I was like, oh wait, I didn't even know you could do that. Like that wasn't even a possibility. This is what I couldn't believe when I watched it. As an investor, like you want the founder, you want to see that they can negotiate and that they're not just going to take the first thing that comes up and say yes. Like if I were Robert or anyone else up there, I'd be like, this is great that she's negotiating. Like, and I feel like it almost shows women like, oh, just don't be careful. Don't negotiate because then they might walk away. I don't know. That is what my fear was too, is that it, I mean, and there are a lot of things happened after the show that have honestly nothing to do with that even of like being criticized for the outfit I wore or, you know, a lot of, I had a viral TikTok about misogynistic comments that I got after the show. And I just wanted to bring those to light because I talked to other female founders who also experienced the same thing. But I did have a couple of, of Shark Tank alums that, that were female founders that reached out and they, they had kind of the same sentiment of, does this teach young girls and women watching don't negotiate because this is what happens. You lose the deal. 
that's why I was upset when I watched it. I was like, wait a second. The whole purpose of this show is to really like their audience on Shark Tank. It's, you know, families and young kids who are watching this to learn about entrepreneurship. I'm like, just don't air that part or something because I don't want, you know, young, especially young girls to think you you can't negotiate. So I also believe whatever is meant to be is is meant to be and will happen. So wasn't meant to be, right? And you still got all the the press and the PR from it. (laughs) I think like at the end of the day, we also forget like it's a reality show, right? Like they have to make the best TV possible and that's their job, right? And of course they do want the founders to get a deal and like they have, I wouldn't say their intentions are bad at all. Like it's a, it's a business, but truly like that episode of like building me up and then falling right at the end probably made for great television because Mm -hmm. it evoked emotion, right? Like either I was very polarizing and I know that from all the comments that I got afterwards, either you loved me and you were like, holy crap, I can't believe that happened to her, right? And like, you know, to your point about about encouraging women to, to negotiate and like teaching young girls that like you have, you had either that stance or you had the stance of she was arrogant and she got greedy and she shouldn't have negotiated. And why was she wearing that hot pink outfit? And, you know, there was that camp. So there's, and I think that's what was kind of crazy is like, it was so one or the other. There was no one in between, no one. And I think, you know, reality TV again, lends itself to that, but also, I kind of have like a personal motto of like, if you're lukewarm, then you're probably not doing it right. Like either either like be amazing and be loved or, you know, be hated. But like the most, I would say successful people are polarizing like that. So it was kind of like a a mental health moment for me too, because I, I would say I was depressed for like a week. Like I was like pretty anxious and like I would wake up being like, you know, what did I do wrong? Should I not have negotiated? You know, just just all those th- thoughts that go in your head. But at the end of the day, kind of having time now, a little less than a year since it aired, it served its purpose. And mm-hmm. it's one of the springboards that allowed me to do what I'm doing today. So mm-hmm. I'm forever thankful for it. And it taught me a lot about having thick skin and like mm-hmm. going on national TV and being criticized like that or being loved like that. Like, take none of it, take none of the praise, take none of the hate. Like it's, and so that I think taught me a lot about myself, which, you know, it did to your point, like serve its purpose. Yes, absolutely. Well, I have to say your outfit was amazing. And oh my God, thank you. I think I still think so too. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to show you when we stop recording, I'll pull up a picture. We just did an entrepreneurista event in Miami and I basically wore like that exact same outfit. It was Courtney's. Courtney was going to wear it. And I was like, Courtney, I want to wear that outfit. And I <laughs> wore it. So like the, the hot, it was like a hot coral, hot coral suit with little, with little shorts in Miami. Yeah. Like, I mean, did you see Valentino's fall show was all hot pink and it was like the most gorgeous, like, and people are calling it Barbie core now where like women are coming into, like, they're not just trying to like, like, I guess like it's not dumb themselves down, but like make themselves just like neutral and like stand in the back and not blend in. Like they're wearing these like powerful colors and they're wearing it in the form of a suit. Like I still am obsessed with it. And I, I I stand by that. Courtney and I have been wearing like pink, red, like bright color suits for years. Like just own it. Like we want to be fashionable and wear what we want to wear. And I love it. Well, gone are the days. I think so. I went to undergrad business at McCombs and at UT. And there was actually, I don't know if, if you ever had this in school, but we had like a booklet of what you should wear and what you should not wear. And in the women's section, 
there was pantyhose. There was, you know, you had to, your skirt had to hit a certain length on your knees. The colors were like just like black, dark blue, dark gray. It told you what kind of jewelry you could wear. It was like, you have to only wear studs. Try not to wear a necklace. If you do, it has to be super like small, like don't wear any rings. It's kind of crazy now that I think back on that booklet. I'm like, that's what we were taught. Like, I know, I know. So that's why we need to have all of these conversations because that's just, it shouldn't be that way, you know, where entrepreneurs need to express ourselves. And if people 100%. don't like it, too bad. Keep going. Too bad. <laughs> Sabina, I would love if you could talk a little bit more about the fundraising process. We have a lot of members of our community that are either thinking about raising capital or currently in the midst of a fundraise. And I know you, you're still at the tail end of your fundraise right now. Any advice and tips you can share for women that are just starting out? It's funny because I fought it for so long. Like my most recent job was at a venture capital firm here in LA called M13. And you see both sides when you're at a place like that. And you see like, you know, there is pressure to grow. And we invested in insanely successful companies when I was there. But there are two different paths. And I think I fought it and was like, maybe I can take this lukewarm path. And the two paths I'm talking about is one, there's the raise venture, grow as fast as possible, like to an exit and raise a ton of money. Profitability comes secondary and go, 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 go. And then there's another path that is build a profitable business, which I'm so, I have a couple of friends who are in this path and I'm so envious of them. Like build a profitable business, make sure you hit profitability as soon as possible. Be very prudent it will take a lot longer, a lot longer than this, than this side, unless, you know, you're lucky you're an influencer, have a following, something like that. But, you know, you have control and you can decide what decisions to make based on your own business acumen, but also like your performance. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if you have like a down quarter or, and it's okay if you, you know, something goes wrong and you need to hold on hiring or need to hold on growing, or it's okay if you say no to a retailer, mm -hmm. which like on this side, you you absolutely cannot say no to a retailer. So anyways, there's in my head now, there are, and sure, like maybe there'll be some people that are like, oh, well, maybe there's this in-between kind of thing. But I tried to do this lukewarm thing and it did not work for me mm -hmm. because I raised initially just to start up the co-packer, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was, it's really expensive to start a co-packer and there are minimum quantities and all of that. So that was the initial kind of genesis of my raise in early 2021. And then you have investors at that point. Like it's sure it was a little bit of friends and family, but I did have a couple of smaller firms come in and a couple of angels who there is that kind of pressure to grow. So Ultimately, I like fought it for a little bit. I was like, no, I want to build this profitably. And then realized one, there are a ton of competitors that are after me that are also raising. And there are a ton of, there's kind of more saturation in this space than there was before because of what we've built. But then two, you know, there is a fiduciary duty to investors to make sure that they can exit and make sure that they have a positive outcome in a short amount of time. Like you can't mm -hmm. sit on their money for, you know, 15, 20 years. Right. So that's all to say, like, I ended up now choosing this path of, okay, you know, we did 1.2 in our first year. We're expecting to 5X this year. Will we need to kind of play that game now versus trying to be this kind of in between? We're still trying to hit profitability as soon as sure. possible. I will say yeah. that's one thing that that I do have my eye on is, is making sure we do hit that profitability. But from a growth standpoint, like, that is our number one goal. So that's all to say, like, there are benefits and there are pros and cons that come with each of those. And, you know, control is one of them. I will say 
being bootstrapped for me, there was a little bit more stress in hiring because Mm -hmm. I felt like I couldn't hire because it was so expensive to bring on someone that a lot of bootstrap companies, it's just them or like them Mm -hmm. and a co-founder or, you know, maybe one hire for like several years. So that was one thing on the team side where having this funding has really helped me build a team and have experts in each of the the different functions. Whereas I don't know that I could have done that or not as quickly if I had done the kind of bootstrap thing. How did you determine how much you needed to raise? And how did you set your valuation? Or did your investors give you an offer and set your valuation? Yeah, so I set my own valuation. On your first raise, usually when you're either call it maybe not pre-seed, but like when you've had some traction, there's kind of ranges that you can, you know of, right? So between like five and seven or five and eight was about the range that uh, around that time when I was raising. And so I kind of knew like, okay, I've had a little bit of traction already and it's, we're showing growth and we're showing kind of promise with retailers. So, you know, can raise a little bit above, or I can, you know, value it a little bit above that five, but you know, the amount you raise is it's kind of funny because you can ask an entrepreneur that has a business like mine or a business like Impossible Meat, and that will be a completely different game, right? Like they, their budget is really, really dependent on R&D and they're creating a new category. Mm-hmm. So they have to invest so much more. So the amount that they, I mean, they've raised millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like, for a brand like mine in in this space where you the channels are known, right? Like retail, grocery, and you know, D2C, the channels are known. And then as well, the category is a little bit known. I knew like, okay, here is here's kind of like the breakdown of what I'll need for this next year. And I did it based off of a year because I didn't want to like raise again in six months. So basically you have to plan your budget for a year and then decide, okay, that's the amount I'm gonna need. And then you kind of do that same process. So when I raised again, unless something changes, right? Like this year I raised in January and then now I'm raising again in, what is it, September because we got a ton of retail doors mm-hmm. opened. So that that kind of spurred another raise. Whereas, you know, the January raise would have lasted me kind of like the full calendar year. What advice can you share about getting into retail in that process? Oh my gosh, retail is the wild, wild west. <laughs> it is truly so, it's like, a crazy, crazy channel because you have literally no control. You can try and kind of implement bumpers to have control. But I will say if you're disrupting a category, it makes it much easier. So whether that's cold, like we got into Sprouts because I cold LinkedIn the buyer. So it's been, and that will launch in, in December, but. Oh, good. We have a Sprouts right down the street from us. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> And also the LinkedIn tip you just shared, LinkedIn is amazing to reach out to people. I think people forget, like you can get directly to people very easily and people are not getting bombarded with messages like you are an email. Like people respond on LinkedIn. So People respond on LinkedIn. And it's like, so there are are multiple avenues to getting into retail. Like a couple of them were, you know, my connection in the food space. A couple of them were, you know, applying cold on their website, going to conferences like Expo, which is a big food conference, Mm -hmm. the natural foods food conference here in LA, Expo West. And then there's one in in Philly that's Expo East, meeting people there. And then, yeah, I mean, the LinkedIn, you'd be surprised at, at the number of people that respond. And so that was Sprouts. And then you know, there were, I'm trying to think of a couple of like smaller retailers as well, where they're looking for kind of new innovative Mm -hmm. things. 
And I mean, I've heard crazy stories of like founders like showing up at headquarters mm-hmm. or, you know, sending product directly to headquarters, which I'm maybe not that gutsy. Like, I don't know if I would just like show up somewhere uninvited, but people do crazy things to get on shelves. And the interesting thing is the work actually starts after you get on the shelf. Like it's not getting on the shelf is amazing. It's like, great. We got into Whole Foods in the Southern Pacific region. Amazing. But we need people to come buy the product now. Mm -hmm. You can't just sit on the shelf. So that's where I think there's a little bit of kind of caution is getting into the retailer is amazing, but then making sure that you are doing the marketing and and making sure that it turns on shelf is truly, that's like the, the really hard work. Coming up, Sabina shares her tips on how to get into retail. Savina, this is a fun segment we love to do. I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. So the first word or words that come to your mind. Are you ready? Let's go. (laughs) Describe yourself in three words. Energetic. Actually, I take that back. Effervescent. Someone said that to me and I was like, that's amazing. Hustler and sensitive, which is surprising to people. (laughs) What is your favorite dough flavor? Oh my gosh. Well, this is so basic of me. We just launched pumpkin spice yesterday (laughs) and it is, it's a pumpkin spice cookie dough with chocolate chips in it. Like what more could you want? (laughs) I have to go get some. So when you'll have to tell me where to go get it, but I need to go get some. (laughs) All right. Coffee or tea? Ooh, coffee in the morning, but matcha in the afternoon. Hmm. What is your favorite app on your phone that you can't live without? I've recently become obsessed with the health app and I started tracking a couple things, include I, I don't know, just things that I didn't think I would track. So I do recommend it if you're into kind of like the data biohacking thing. All right. The health app. How about your favorite business tool or solution that's helped you grow your business? We really use Notion. I mean, Notion has been a saver for us when it comes to I don't know, just co-working remotely. Like that is, working remote is really difficult. So I highly recommend to everyone. You're not the first person that said that. And that's actually one of the apps that we haven't been using at Entrepreneurista. So I, I think we need to look into that one. So thank you for recommending that. Finally, what is your hidden talent? Do you have one? I'm a really good jump roper. <laughs> there was this thing called Jump Rope for Heart. It was um, a charity when we were kids. And I would always be like either one or two. And I didn't like practice or anything. I was just excellent. And I could just go for days. Like it's That's probably, amazing. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's also just my tenacity of like, I'm going to keep going because I'm not going to stop. <laughs> but yeah, that's is a weird talent that I have. I love that one. Would have never known. All right. Back to our, our regular questions. What would you say, you know, is a mantra or quote that you live your life by? I generally, and I don't like the term, like, don't take no for an answer. Or like, there's another quote that was like, you know, a no is a maybe and a maybe is a yes. I don't know if I buy those completely, but basically, like, if you get a no in the business world, it's not a no, right? Like, you can keep pushing and keep finding a way there. And I think no's are really discouraging and you get a shit ton of them doing this. Like everybody says no. It's much easier to say no than yes. Mm -hmm. So in this world, being able to kind of navigate around that and not get discouraged is, I think it's super important. 
Oh my gosh, it's so important. I always share with people, you know, learn from these no's, like find out why, ask questions because yeah. these no's are definitely a way to get to the yes. And as entrepreneurs, like you said, we hear no a lot and you yeah. have to be able to just keep going. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise we'd stop. But that's why we're in the businesses that we're in, right? That's why we're doing it. We're masochists. <laughs> Do you have a favorite way to unwind or relax? Like, do you have the ability to relax? Because I personally don't, but don't. <laughs> I try. <laughs> so it's funny because I just went on, I went on my first vacation since I launched the company and went to South of France with my, for my husband's birthday and a group of our friends. And the first few days, I could not, like, it was not even possible. Like I was on email, like it was just such a weird habit, especially because I hadn't taken one yet. And then it got to a point where once I turned my email notifications off and I, maybe it's just email that has like a mm -hmm. chokehold on me, but that's when I could. And so if I'm really ever trying to relax, I will make it a point to do that. But I also, I also get bored very easily. Mm -hmm. So like my version of relaxing on like a Friday night is watching housewives and having like a glass of wine and having honestly like our brownie batter cookie dough because it's so fucking good. But also it's like, I might be on my phone, you know, shopping on Zara at the same time. Yep, yep, so yep. like it is relaxing, but it's also like, oh, I'm kind of like doing something because, you know, my best friend's wedding is next week and I need to like buy something for it. So maybe the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? I think being an entrepreneurista is bringing all parts of yourself into what you're doing. Mm. And it kind of like circles back to our earlier conversation of dressing the way that you would want to dress and saying the things that you would want to say and doing the things that you're passionate about because clearly you're bored at work or your day job. I think it's just being able to bring all facets of your personality and who you are into running a business. And that is like one of the most freeing things ever, I would say. If of, you know, like I have tattoos, like I'm a little too transparent. I'm pretty blunt. Like there are things that were, I would say, looked down upon in corporate world where now I feel like I can bring everything to my work. And that is really refreshing. And I think being able to do that and do it in a way that's your way is is mm -hmm. pretty much being an entrepreneurista. <laughs> I love that. And you can just be you. Well, Savina, Thank you so much for spending the time to chat with me, sharing all of your learning lessons, your story, your journey. I am personally so excited to be invested in the business and see all of the incredible things that you're going to continue to do. It is so wonderful. Where can everyone find you, follow you? And of course, for those who haven't tried dough yet, where can they go buy it? Oh my gosh, please go buy it. Eatdo.com is the website at eatdo, E-A-T-D-E-U-X is our Instagram. And then my personal is at Sabina Lada, S-A-B-E-E-N-A-L-A-D-H-A. Amazing. We'll be linking out to everything in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Sabina, for being here. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Mm -hmm.